The best way to predict where we're going is to take a look behind to tell where we've been. So as we look ahead to a new year, a new decade really, I think it's worth taking this opportunity to look back at the decade that just passed. So that's what this week's episode is all about, identifying the biggest trends in the restaurant industry from the past 10 years. Stick around. There's an old saying that goes something like this. You'll only find three kinds of people in the world. Those who see, those who can see when shown, and those who will never see. This is Restaurant Strategy, a marketing podcast for everyone in the middle. Hey everyone, thanks again for tuning in. My name is Chip Close and this is Restaurant Strategy, a weekly marketing podcast dedicated entirely to the restaurant industry. Now, each week I choose a different topic. We explore that topic, we pick it apart. Hopefully, by the end, we come across some useful insights and then we finish up with an assignment. I always leave you with a short, actionable task, something you can do right away to start implementing the concepts that we talk about here on the show because I believe information is only as valuable as the action it inspires. Now, close your eyes for a second, unless you're driving. If you're driving, please keep both hands on the wheel and please keep your eyes wide open. But for the rest of you, close your eyes, take a deep breath, and try to think back to the start of the last decade. Where were you in January of 2010? I remember exactly where I was. I was opening a fancy new Italian restaurant for a big deal celebrity chef in the heart of Midtown Manhattan. I was the maitre d' running the front door and marketing back then looked very different than it does today. Instagram was still months away from even launching and no one under the age of let's say 35 was on Facebook at all. Airbnb and Uber were only about a year old and no one had ever heard of Snapchat or TikTok. Open table was king when it came to reservation systems and Micros and Aloha were the leaders in restaurant POS software. Now, think of how much has changed when it comes to restaurant technology. How many POS systems do we now have? Restaurant owners have dozens and dozens of options to choose from. And reservation systems? Open Table has lost huge market share just over the last three years to competitors like Resi and Talk and Seven Rooms. Shopify has made e-commerce accessible to the masses, and Etsy has provided artists and craftspeople with a more efficient way of reaching their audiences. Consider for a second how drastically your day-to-day has changed as a restaurant owner in just 10 years. If I told you in 2010 that within five or six years, you would need to have someone on payroll whose sole job it was to update the restaurant's social media pages, you would have thought I was crazy. And yet that's exactly where we're at. If you're not on those sites, you're basically invisible. Social media has become one key way that people now discover new restaurants. And so, as we prep for the road ahead, I think it's worthwhile to identify the 10 biggest trends that we saw in dining from 2010 to 2020, and then figure out how that has affected the way we now market restaurants. We'll then use all of that information to make some predictions about where we go from here. And so, without any further ado, let's dive right in. Trend number one, of course, social media. I think we'd all agree that by far the biggest shift of the past decade has been the rise of social media. Love it or hate it, social sites like Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter have inserted themselves into our daily lives. We spend hours and hours each day checking in, 
or posting or updating or whatever, logging hours on the sites because we've been queued to do that. And since the eyeballs are there, that's where the advertisers have gone. That includes us, right? Even if you're not spending money on Facebook ads, you as a business owner are probably still posting to the site regularly, trying to entice diners to try out your restaurant. I think it's been the single biggest cultural shift since the advent of television. It is fundamentally reshaping how we engage with each other and with the brands we value. Social media has changed the way we gather information and make decisions both big and small in our day-to-day lives. Travel influencers now introduce us to exotic new places where we may want a vacation. Restaurants post to their feeds daily showing off their food, their dining room. We read comments and tally likes all in an effort to keep up with the crowd. So nowadays, when I ask people about their marketing strategy, they'll respond often by saying, oh yeah, we're very active on Instagram, which is the interesting thing and the danger. Our market is more saturated than ever, and so we need smarter strategies, more comprehensive strategies. And instead, people are doing less than ever before. They're doing social media thinking that's marketing, which is why I've shifted my personal business a lot over the last year. For a long time, I was working with restaurants to help them anchor their social media strategy. But then I realized a little while back that restaurant owners were then neglecting other key areas of marketing their restaurant. And so I've worked personally to expand what my agency offers. This podcast has largely been an extension of the work I do with my company. I'm sharing many of my thoughts and ideas with you guys each and every week, uh, but it has affected the way that I do my business. Just remember, social media will continue to evolve. It's only like 15 years old and already it's reinvented itself two or three times. It will continue to do so and you must stay nimble enough to go with the flow. Also remember, you want to be building assets that you own. You don't own Facebook. You operate a small piece of real estate on Facebook, your business page. But if the company disappeared tomorrow, you wouldn't get to keep that page. The fans you have, the community you've built, the assets you house there on Facebook, all of it would be lost if the company folded. So maintain a presence on social media. And yes, keep up with the trends, but also make sure to build your own following. That means specifically a website. That means an email list and a reservation book filled with true fans. Social media is not the silver bullet. It has changed how we do business over the last 10 years, but it is not everything. Remember that. Trend number two, I want to talk about reservation software. So for a long time, we talked about this a little bit at the beginning, uh, Open Table was the only show in town. And so it wasn't just the place you went to book a table. It was the place you went to figure out where you wanted to book a table. People, myself included, would log on and put their criteria into the filters, right? Thursday night, 6.30, four people, and search. And the system would then spit out all of the available tables in your area. You would then choose the one that sounded most interesting. More than a reservation system, OpenTable became a powerful search engine. People used it to go discover new restaurants, to figure out what was out there, where they, where they might want to try next. And for a restaurant, when obscurity is often a big hurdle to overcome, this was one important way to get yourself in front of hungry diners. But look how much has changed in just 10 years. Open Table has lost market share to competitors like Resi, Talk, and Seven Rooms. Each of them offer different features, and one will invariably work better for a restaurant than another. And competition is good, right? Well, sometimes. Because now, when restaurants are listed on one of those four platforms, 
it's harder to treat the reservation systems as search engines. Now, people still do, at least I still do, but less so than I used to. And I would hazard a guess and say that's probably the case for many people out there. So when you take a bird's eye view of the entire industry, I think something's been lost. It's now just a bit harder to discover something new, which makes a restaurant owner's job just a bit harder than it was. Change is the only constant, but competition between all these reservation systems has made things just a little bit harder for both the diners and restaurateurs. So it's no surprise, I think, that uh, the Zagat Guide has returned after a brief hiatus. For those unfamiliar with the guide, it's a, it's a compendium of all of the restaurants in New York City or San Francisco or Chicago with scores given for food, ambiance, and service. The websites are listed there and so are the phone numbers along with, a, with an estimated per-person dollar amount. So it's a restaurant database and that seems to be something worth having these days and I'm just waiting for someone to figure out how to do that well online. Trend number three, the fall of traditional media. So over the last 10 years, we saw traditional media outlets lose considerable ground to newer sites like Grub Street, Eater, and the Infatuation, and then were thus forced to reinvent themselves. So take the New York Times, for example. For as big and powerful as they are, they were forced to re-envision what their dining section was or, or could be. So editor Sam Sifton, who was also once a restaurant critic for the paper, launched the cooking section back in 2014. It's a membership site under the New York Times umbrella uh, where subscribers have access to thousands of recipes and guides to cooking some of their favorite foods. Now, we're going to talk more about this when we get to number seven, when we talk about dining habits. But dining habits continue to shift, and the New York Times recognized that and served a very real audience with this product, the cooking section. So the restaurant reviews and the gossip columns were only getting so much attention, and that's because diners are getting their information in a variety of different places these days. The infatuation and their best of lists. Eater has their essential 38. These things have really shifted the way people decide where to dine, and thus restaurants and publicists were forced to change their approach as well. So now it's no longer about just getting a great review. It's also about getting named on one of those top 10 lists, you know, top 10 brunch spots in Kansas City, best cocktail bars in South Beach, and so on. It's not just about getting a small mention in a big publication, but rather getting a big feature on a small niche site. So websites like Eater cater directly to foodies, and so it's about getting in front of a targeted audience, so a smaller batch of readers who will probably be more apt to check you out. So think about that for a second. When people get their copy of the New York Times delivered, and yes, there are still people who get home delivery, but they read all of the paper or most of the paper. But if people log on to Eater, they have navigated there deliberately. They have sought out the information. Technology has helped connect disparate groups, just like we spoke about a few weeks back when we were breaking down that Kevin Kelly essay, A Thousand True Fans. Sites like Eater and The Infatuation know exactly who their audience is, and they cater only to them. And that is a huge shift in how publicity and PR has been handled for restaurants, and this is largely, I think, a change for good. Number four, everyone became a critic. So we're talking, of course, about user reviews, right? So if average diners no longer put all their trust in a few critics who work at the big newspapers, that's because they're now able to get their recommendations elsewhere. Again, sites like Eater, 
Infatuation, Grub Street are certainly part of this, but then also sites like Yelp and TripAdvisor. Even OpenTable and Google are places that people go check out because there are user reviews. So rather than trust a single critic, diners can now consult with dozens of users who have logged reviews of their own. We can get a sense of the restaurant by hearing about dozens and dozens of different dining experiences. Industry-wide, we saw a seismic shift in whose opinion matters. This fragmentation, again, I think is largely a good thing. So what if one critic hated his meal when hundreds of other diners leave happy every night? The various reviews also give context to the reader. And again, I view all of this as a good thing. It's harder this way. Yeah, of course. 10 or 15 years ago, all you had to do was wow the critic from the New York Times. But now you have to wow each and every guest who comes in the door. But think about the opportunity that's available to you. Every half hour, you have a new batch of tables arriving and sitting down to dinner. You get the chance over and over and over again to win people over, day after day, one meal at a time. And yeah, that takes hard work, but it also means you have a way that you can insulate yourself from a poor review or no review. So now you get to do the hard work of taking care of people, which is great because that's what we do anyway in this business. We treat everyone as a critic because everyone's opinion matters. In fact, there's a book I love that just came out last year. It's called Marketing Rebellion, and it's all about this shift that's taken place over the last 10 years. Everyone matters. Let that empower you both as a consumer and as a merchant as you set about to market your restaurant. Trend number five, we should talk about the way we use email marketing. So in just 10 years, e-blasts have gone from novel to hated to necessary. Now, you remember back in the early days of email, it was so exciting to get a correspondence, right? Whether that was from your mom or your college roommate or from Old Navy. You were like, ooh. But then brands took advantage of our attention. We developed spam filters to keep out all the unwanted junk that landed in our inbox. And eventually, Gmail came up with the three-tab solution to keep all of your promotions in a separate place. Promotions, of course, meant email that came in from companies. Emails trying to sell you something. So in just a few short years, all of us came to then hate e-blasts. It was all sell, sell, sell. We unsubscribed to everything. And when cashiers at The Gap asked for our email address, we guarded it as we would a small baby. As a society, we've transitioned from, uh, from person to person or, or phone-based you know, voice conversations to text. And that means emails and text messages and Slack and social media, phone calls are now reserved for serious interactions. The rest is all typed. And so emails are cool again, except we've learned a lot about how to best use an email list in the years since. The biggest rule now is that we must be providing value to our audience. What is it they want and how can we provide them with that? Certainly, that's the big thing I'm always talking about with my clients. And it's something we've talked about before here on this podcast. In fact, now an engaged email list is one of your most valuable assets. You're identifying a group of people who trust you and want what you're offering. And again, those are powerful things when it comes to building a base of loyal customers. So who knows how it will shift in the coming years, but right now it's a valuable piece to any marketing campaign. Trend number six, shifting content channels. So by 2010, it felt like everyone had a blog, right? That was the joke. The movie Julie and Julia came out in 2009 at the height of the blog craze. And then shortly thereafter, things began to shift. Blogs gave way to YouTube channels and influencers and even podcasts. Really, what we're talking about is content. 
The way in which people consume media has shifted dramatically just in the last decade, and that's been an incredible thing to both witness and to be a part of. Think back with me to 2010. Who did you trust? No, I mean it. How did you decide which movie to see? Right? So Ebert and Roper gave way to Rotten Tomatoes. A.O. Scott gave way to your Netflix recommendations. And so what about hotels? Right? If you were traveling, you uh, used to consult AAA or a travel agent or, or maybe a travel magazine. And then came sites like Hotels.com and Orbitz and Kayak. But now we've also got travel influencers and dozens of blogs that can be found just by doing a quick Google search. And that's not to mention uh, the, all the travel podcasts or the, the YouTube channels dedicated uh, specifically to travel. Now, what about restaurants? It's now Eater and the Infatuation, maybe a couple of Instagram celebrities. The area of influence, right? That's what we're talking about. And it's changed dramatically in just the matter of 10 years. How trust is built and maintained is way different now. We used to trust the big paper, right? The New York Times is reputable and has been around forever, so their opinion must matter. But now we can go find other people who share our taste. Because maybe A.O. Scott has different tastes than I do, so the movies he loves might bore me to tears. Okay, so then let me seek out opinions from people who are more like me. Technology and the connectivity of the internet has made that possible and easier than ever. So pay very close attention to where people get their information and who they trust. The world has changed dramatically, especially for those of us in the service industry, careful to heed the lessons of the past. Now, number seven, we talked about this a little bit before, but I want to talk about changing dining habits. Now, go with me back to 1994, right? The Food Network launched in 1994 and put dining front and center in American culture. Now, not at first, mind you, no. In the beginning, the Food Network was actually kind of the butt of jokes. People made fun of Emeril and Bobby Flay. But at time, people came to appreciate them and love them and follow them. They soon became first-class citizens, and they bred a whole new generation of chef known as celebrity chefs. So on the coattails of that came shows like Top Chef and Hell's Kitchen, and then Rachel Ray got her own daytime show, which paved the way for uh, personalities like Anthony Bourdain and Guy Fieri, and on and on and on. You get my point. The Food Network changed everything. It helped up the game for the entire restaurant industry here in America. People were learning more about food and wine, and so they wanted to have more of it in their lives. So then when we travel beyond that, when we're talking about the 10 years that just passed, we have to talk about how technology and hospitality have intersected. And they intersected at two key points that affected the restaurant industry, surprisingly enough, in opposite ways. What am I talking about? Home delivery and home meal kits. So the first help broaden a restaurant's reach. I'm talking about apps like Seamless and Grubhub and Caviar and Ritual. They all helped bring restaurant food to your front door. It meant lower profit margins for restaurant owners, but more revenue, which was key for places with limited seating. Of course, on the other side were the home meal kits like Blue Apron and HelloFresh. Gourmet recipes pre-packaged for you and delivered right to your door. Since going out is expensive, and the meal kits provided high-quality ingredients and tasty recipes for a fraction of the cost, it was a boon for diners, but it did damage restaurants all over the country. Now dig a little deeper into those two trends, and you'll discover that both of these have been trending for the past decade or so. So what happened 10 years ago? Well, the financial crash of 2008 and 2009. 
As the country fell into a deep recession, people's habits changed, particularly with their discretionary spending. No one was quite sure what would happen on the other side of the financial crisis. So restaurants and travel were two of the industries that took the biggest hit. And so instead of going out to eat, people decided instead to just open a bottle of wine at home and order in. Or they would spend less on prepared food and instead try out those home delivery meal kits. These two things made a big mark on our industry, and I assume many of you out there have been affected by one or both of these. For better or worse, this was a big trend these past many years, and I bring it up because I think it was at least partially caused by real-world events. We're heading into an election year, and all politics aside, dining is one of the things that typically dips in an election year. People are unsure of the future, and so they hold on to their cash just a bit tighter. They wait to see which way the wind is going to blow. In addition to that, there's going to be debates on TV and other events that people will want to watch. Don't let these things catch you by surprise. We have decades worth of data, and it all shows that the economy slumps just a bit in an election year. So be ready for it. Now, trend number eight, citizenship became cool these past 10 years, right? So 10 years ago, organic was really more of a buzzword than anything else. Farm to table was all the rage, and the word foodie was still a, a badge that people wanted to wear. But now things have pushed so far beyond that, we're starting to talk about the industrialization of food, as we have a, a better understanding of the toll modern farming and fishing takes on our planet. Farm-raised fish is bad, but so is overfishing the wild species of fish. Meat is bad, not necessarily because of the ethical concerns, but more because of the environmental impact. We think about just how much water is needed, how much gas it takes to transport the beef to, to markets all over the world. So over the past decade, people became more aware of the food they're eating, where it came from, how it was raised, and the process by which it came to us. These are conversations we're now having at a national level, and I believe it's just the beginning. Activists are now looking very closely at the dairy industry and fishing practices, right? Specifically, the types of hormones and antibiotics used in the milk we drink here in America. And when we talk about fishing, there's an author, Paul Greenberg, who's written a couple of incredible books on the subject, but one in particular, American Catch, where he shares some crazy facts. In fact, I heard him speak once, and he quoted this statistic that was reported on uh, by the AP. He says, the U.S., is now home to major commercial fisheries for species such as Pacific salmon, New England lobster, and Alaska pollock. But it imports more than 90% of the seafood that the public consumes. And we export nearly 4 billion pounds of seafood each and every year. Think of the fuel it takes to go out and get the fish and then bring it back. And then in the plants where these fish are broken down and packaged. And then the fuel it takes to transport those products all over the world. I think as we move forward, we're going to see all kinds of other fish popping up on menus, less salmon, less striped bass, less snapper, and more totog and porgy. So will that affect your business? I think it will in some way. Citizenship is cool. It has become cool. And I think that drive is only going to grow in the coming years. I don't know how it will affect your business, but I think it's going to be important that you be aware of it. Now, trend number nine, we're coming towards the end, blurring the lines between fast food, casual, and fancy. So for years, the lines have been blurring between fast food and casual, right? A few years back, you'll remember McDonald's changed their entire ordering system. And now you order from a screen, you take a number, you sit down, and they'll come bring your food to you. 
That was unheard of 20 or 25 years ago. The whole key to the fast food experience was quick service at the counter. You order your food, they make your food, you take your food and you go find a seat. This of course uh, came after, now we know, after Panera Bread started doing something uh, similar. Fast food places now offer some light service. And uh, it might seem small, but that's a big shift for an industry that's been thriving for 60 plus years without it. Likewise, McDonald's and Burger King have been threatened by brands like Shake Shack who offer uh, what I think a lot of people consider to be a superior product at a similar price point. So you get better quality beef, well-designed spaces, all in all a better experience. Then on the other end of the spectrum, we've been seeing blurring there as well. So what constitutes a fine dining meal these days? Right, Most of the, the best places used to require a jacket and a tie, but no more. Even in New York City, many of the finest places no longer require it. Sure, most people do it anyway, but it's not required. Likewise, the nature of the experience is also changing. We now have restaurants like Atera or Atomix or Brooklyn Fair where diners sit at a bar, but instead of the bartender, they're watching the chef create their meal right before their eyes. These are usually multi-course affairs and they're very expensive, but gone is the pretense of the, the white linen and the stuffy service. It's now just you and the food. So instead of dinner and a show, it's dinner as the show. Casual restaurants have also popped up all over the country that offer a relaxed environment, but with high quality food. So jeans and a shirt are okay, and there's still a first-class wine list and polished service and and a well-constructed menu. But again, the pretense is gone. So again, this is a big shift, and who knows where we're going to go from here. Finally then, brings us to trend number 10, Marketing is now front and center. Ten years ago, marketing was reserved for big corporations. It was about graphs and charts and KPIs and and carting out big words you learned in business school. But that's all changed. Marketing is now required to survive in the marketplace today. And let's think about how different things were just a decade ago. So if you had a good idea for a restaurant, you lined up financing, you found a space, and you opened up shop. People came where they didn't, and that was all there was to it. Now, though, as the market has become more and more saturated, restaurants are being forced to articulate what they serve and who they serve it to. This, of course, is the crux of my mission as a marketer, right? As a small business owner and a podcaster, my main argument, the one I make time and time again, is that you have to be a thoughtful business owner. It's no longer enough to serve good food. You need to build an audience who loves what you do. You need to build something remarkable, something that stands out, something worth talking about. You have to serve an audience and solve an audience's problem. The fact that people want to learn about marketing thrills me. The fact that I have an audience that tunes in week after week, an audience that wants to learn more and get better to make more money, it's all I could hope for. Okay. So those are the 10 biggest trends that I see from the past decade. And it's cool to look back and identify them all, but, but then what do we do with all that information? Well, first and foremost, I, I want us all to sit back and appreciate just how much has changed. And I want you to pat yourself on the back for navigating through successfully. Plenty of businesses, I'm sure you know them, have closed up shop. And you, yes, you, are still here. But if there's any takeaway here, it's this. The things that got you here will not get you there. Meaning, to run a successful restaurant, let's say in the 1980s and 90s, took one set of skills, one unique set of tactics. It was about prominent placement in the yellow pages and a corner spot in a good shopping center. It was about location, 
and scarcity, and that was great for a while. But now with the internet 2.0, the game has changed, right? Google launched AdWords in the year 2000, and that killed the yellow pages. Craigslist launched and killed the classifieds, which basically killed print newspapers, which in turn diminished the power of restaurant critics and gossip columnists with a vacuum in the market sites like Eater then and infatuation rose to prominence. Yelp, TripAdvisor, all of it. One little shift and the whole game changes. So you now have to be aware of the world around you. Pay attention to dining habits. Get to know your patrons. Figure out who they are and what they like. Ask them questions. Learn from the answers that they give you. Other businesses don't have the luxury of of one-on-one connection, but we in the restaurant industry get to serve our patrons each and every night, one person at a time. Don't take that for granted and don't squander that opportunity. Figure out how they heard about you. That will tell you something about your marketing. Track how they booked their reservation. What other places do they dine at? What do they love about your restaurant and what do they hate? We have to be students of the world and especially students of our industry. Keep up with the trends, not to be hip and trendy, but to stay relevant, to be part of the conversation, to better understand the industry at large. Okay, so then what comes next? Obviously, no one really knows, but here are my predictions. I have a few ideas and here they are. Number one, I think the numbers don't make sense anymore for standalone restaurants. I don't know why people open restaurants. It's just too hard uh, with razor thin profit margins. In a lot of ways, it just makes no sense. It's too hard to operate a space and serve dinner just six or seven nights a week and expect to be profitable. So keep that in mind. I think casual restaurants are going to be forced to solve the labor problem, right? So there is a labor shortage in this country right now. That's the first part of the problem, but also minimum wage keeps going up. And I think smart restaurateurs are going to figure out a way to save on labor, how to do more with less, so to speak. Specifically, what am I looking for? Well, I have yet to see a restaurant really implement and execute properly iPad table service, meaning no waiters, people are just sat at the table with the menus and an iPad to place their order. I think someone is going to figure that out and make a lot of money doing it. In fact, I've given this a lot of thought, and if anyone wants to talk with me about it, I'd love to talk about it, send me an email, chip at chipclose.com, C-H-I-P-K-L-O-S-E.com. I really do believe it's the future of casual dining. Those who figure it out will stay in business and thrive, and the rest are going to close. On the other side, I think in fine dining, we're going to have to figure out ways to cut management from the payroll, right? So in the old days, right, in the 70s and 80s, there was a GM who ran the restaurant, right? They handled all the financials and ran the place during the day. And then the maitre d' oversaw service at night. The captains were basically managers of their sections, uh, overseeing support staff of front waiters, back waiters, and food runners. But now... We've got service directors and floor managers and wine directors and beverage directors, but I think there's a way to get rid of all of the management except for the GM and the maitre d'. And if you could cut two hundred dollars to $300,000 off your annual payroll, I think that would be a very real number uh, to push things into a really profitable place. I think restaurants are going to have to figure out how to do this job without managers. I think they are fat on the payroll. I really do believe that. Um, I think if you empower your staff, your captains and the service staff to be better, to take more responsibility, I think it will be more profitable for everyone. Again, if you want to talk to me about this and my theories about how to uh, how to staff a uh, fine dining restaurant, I'm all ears. Again, chip at chipclose.com. I also think restaurants are going to have to figure out how to fill their downtime. 
meaning breakfast, lunch, dinner, and late night, right? So certainly not all concepts can do this, right? Alinea isn't going to serve breakfast every day, but I think a lot of concepts out there could, and I think they could do it very well. Other places out there who close on uh, Sundays or Mondays, I think will start figuring out ways to program on those dark nights. So maybe that means subleasing the space to another chef to do a pop-up, or maybe they'll open every Monday night to offer a completely different menu or completely different experience. I think places that are only open for dinner should start offering their restaurant as a co-working space during the day or, or use it during the day to teach classes or workshops or whatever. I think restaurant owners need to get more creative about how they're utilizing their space. I also think social media is going to undergo a big shift in the next, I'll say, two to three years as businesses figure out how to get off the platforms. I know a lot of big companies don't like that they're being forced to spend increasingly more money to get the same results on, let's say, Facebook. And so they will want to pull themselves out of the equation. I think once the big advertisers go, right, the retailers, the magazines, the hotel chains, I think those sites will start to crumble. I think user habits also are starting to change. We spent 15 years sharing everything about ourselves and our lives with the world, and I think the novelty of that is wearing off. I don't know what will replace it, but I think pretty soon people are going to go down to posting maybe once or twice a week instead of once or twice a day, and I think that will have huge shockwaves across all industries, but especially in the restaurants. I think being just good is not going to cut it anymore going forward. Already you hear about this, right? This being the experience economy. People don't just want stuff. They want experiences. They want stories. People already do this, but they will do it more and more. They want something they can share, something they can talk about, something unique that they're going to remember. If you're just good, that won't be enough to attract diners. People need something more than that. And again, I use this with my clients all the time. I ask them, what are the stories only you can tell? That is what I want you to come away with this week. Think about that. What makes you unique? What makes you remarkable? If you can identify the stories that only you can tell and figure out a way to communicate that with your audience, you will be bulletproof no matter which way the trends go moving forward. So now for this week's assignment, I want you to go back over all of these and just write down some thoughts. This isn't a formal exercise. I just want you to jog down some of your thoughts. How have you and your business been affected over the past few years by all of these changing trends? And again, they were number one, the rise of social media. Number two, the changing reservation software. Number three, the decline of traditional media. Number four, the fact that everyone has become a critic. Number five, the ways that we now use email marketing. Number six, all the different content channels, podcasts and blogs and YouTube channels and social media. Number seven, changing dining habits, right? We were talking all about home delivery, things like Seamless and Grubhub, and then home delivery meal kits like Blue Apron. Number eight, how citizenship became cool these last 10 years and how that might continue over the next 10 years. Number nine, we talked about the blurring lines between fast casual and casual restaurants, and then casual restaurants and fine dining. And then finally, number 10, how we now put marketing front and center in everything we do as we try to sell our seats at our restaurant. We look back in order to dive forward, and we're going to have a lot of fun on the podcast in 2020. Lots of great things ahead, including a recap of my recent trip to Paris, a bunch of new interviews, and a summer workshop that I'm putting together that I can't wait to tell you guys all about. 
As always, I want to thank you for being here. If you have a second, I want you to share this week's episode with another restaurant professional who might get something out of it. That's the way I know these things spread, one-to-one. I appreciate you listening. I appreciate you passing this on. I will see you next week. 